you would take your Bibles and open to Romans chapter 8, we're continuing to go through Romans. Paul is teaching us something even to this day that I'm amazed that the church neglects, and it's the Holy Spirit, God himself, the part of the Trinity that's rejected. Sometimes I make light of the fact that he's the redheaded stepchild of the Trinity, and I know that might might offend some of you. I hope it doesn't, but it's just a joke. But the idea is, is second tier. God is not second tier. Regardless if it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, doesn't matter. God is God. He's a creator. And the reason why Paul wants to expound upon the importance of the Holy Spirit is because he's shown us something very interesting, if we could put it together very succinctly. God has a life for us to live that is fully pleasing to him. But until we recognize that we cannot live that life apart from him, we will never live that life. Does that make sense? Thank you, God, for saving me. Now sit in the back seat. That will never work. Not only did we need to be saved because we could not save ourselves, but the means of growing is never a means that we conjure on our own. You will never grow in your understanding of Jesus Christ if you're trying to do it on your own. Our world preaches independence, independence, independence. We even have a declaration of independence, don't we? Yeah. What does the Bible teach? God dependence. God dependence, God dependence. I mean, think about it. Throughout your week, you're probably hit two or three times of remarking just in passing. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Anybody ever felt that? Felt that this week? Anybody? This is a trivia question. I seriously want to know this because I have a beef with this person. Does anybody know the person that invented the icicle lights? I don't want to judge salvation, but I'm pretty sure that guy's not saved, whoever it is. If you've put him up before, you know what's going on. Maybe he was being used by God. Or maybe it was from Satan. Regardless of the fact, whew, I'm sitting up there on the ladder putting those up. Nathaniel's running circles in the parking lot. I'm like, what are you doing? I said, buddy, do you want to help or do you want to play? He said, I want to play. (laughs) Okay, it's cool. But man, how am I going to do this? Even something as simple as having patience and putting up those lights. I need the Lord. And if you don't think that you need the Lord in instances, well, that seems silly. That's not very spiritual. It's a highly spiritual thing when you think about what's going through your mind concerning the guy who invented those lights. You need the Lord. I need the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the key to how you live a life that is pleasing to God. Now, I don't want to run through everything before. We've gone over it over and over and over again. But I do want to start in verse 6, and I want to read along to where we stopped and, and elaborate just a little bit about what we hit on last week and the week before because of how important it is to set us up. Romans chapter 8, look at verse 6. The mind that is set on the flesh is death. Now just think about that for a second because that will give you a lot of discernment about how to live in this world. If somebody only cares about them and theirs 
And those aren't their new pronouns, them and theirs, what they want to do. It's all about them. Selfishly absorbed. What is the end? What's it say? Death. You don't need any elaboration on that. There is nothing fruitful or beneficial that's ever going to come out of that. It is headlong into a brick wall. It says here, but the mindset on the spirit, there's the difference, is life, abundant life, and peace, the peace that passes all understanding. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Ask yourself the question, how do you feel towards God this morning? I don't care anything for God. I don't like God. I don't want anything about God. There might be some of you here that are like that, but guess what? You need to recognize that you're in the flesh and the flesh ends in death. I'm not trying to sway you. I'm trying to tell you the truth. That's where that mindset leads to. Why we would hate God, I don't understand. He's been nothing but gracious. And so he moves on here. It's hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for indeed it is not able. It's not even able to do so. The possibility is not there. But notice what it says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Seems like a pretty simple diagnosis, yes? So what is Paul trying to show us? The flesh is not an answer. It's never an answer. Don't even entertain it because you know where the end is. Now look how he switches this. However, verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. What's the difference? The presence of the indwelling Spirit. That's the difference. If you have the Spirit, you belong to God. How do you get the Spirit? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, period. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. Verse 10, since Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, and that's where we've had all this problem is indwelling sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But since the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and that's for every believer, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you? What are the benefits of the Spirit? The Spirit is the only one who knows how to deal with our sin problem. That's the issue. If our greatest problem is sin, as an unbeliever, your sins are already paid for. If you have not believed, you do not have eternal life. That's a problem. But when you believe, you now have eternal life in the indwelling Holy Spirit. And now the question is, is how do I deal with sin that still wants to drag me down? The means is no different. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the cleansing agent, is the agent that leads you in discernment. And we can't afford to be scared of him. He indwells us. Any of you got a room in your house you don't go in because you think it's haunted? Anybody ever heard of that? I'm not going upstairs. That room is haunted. Now, what's haunting me is that it needs to be dusted. That's what's haunting me, right? But no, there's, we get superstitious about those types of things. I tell you what, you can't get away from the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. So I think one of the greatest uses of our time would be get to know him, get to know how he acts, get to know what he thinks. I mean, we're just learning more about God. And we see this decree constantly in Paul's writings, that you would grow in the knowledge of the Lord over and over and over. Guess what? Holy Spirit's included in that. So we need to get to know him. Notice he will give life to our mortal bodies. The very things that we see dragging us down, guess what? He's going to give life to it one day. That's just how powerful the Holy Spirit is. Verse 12, so then, brethren, we are not under obligation, sorry, we are under obligation, but not to the flesh, because it ends in death, to live according to the flesh. And this is interesting, because he doesn't tell us that we're in obligation to the Spirit. He doesn't bring it up. 
but it's almost like he wants to push us. Why would you not want to go in this way of the Spirit? Look what he says. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. You're in the process of cultivating death. But if by the Spirit, I love this because anybody remember Rambo? Rambo movies, you ladies probably won't care anything about this. Hopefully you do. Rambo, man, I remember as a kid seeing it and he brought out the first time I ever saw a Bowie knife. You ever seen one of those? Oh gosh, I had to go get one. They're amazing. He can do this and this. He undo the bottom. He's got a compass. Old needle and thread. He's stitching up his arm. Man, it's so cool. Right? But this big knife. And whatever Rambo was going through out in the middle of the woods with people chasing him, that knife was going to deal with it. They had guns. Didn't matter. Rambo's got his knife. Look what it says here. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you have your knife? The Holy Spirit is your knife. The enemy is your flesh. The Holy Spirit is the only answer. There is no other answer. There is no other avenue. There is no other solution. And remember, this solution to our flesh problem had to be presented from outside of ourselves. One of the greatest prayers you can ever say is, God, I don't have any answers. Because what's he going to say? I know. He's going to draw you to this. This is why we talk about for all scripture is God breathed. It's inspired by God. What does that mean? God breathed. Breath, same word for spirit. Spirit of God moved people, carried them along to write down exactly what he wanted to say to us. Because the Holy Spirit uses the word of God as the solution. Spirit is our death tool for the flesh. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Sons of God is a designation. And it's not concerned with gender. Please don't take offense to that. It's concerned with rank. Sons of God means mature sons or firstborn sons. These are those who trust in the Lord and ask for the Spirit to lead them. And this is the Holy Spirit's job, to lead us into all truth, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to indwell us, to seal us for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit has got a lot of things that He does in our lives. He serves as a comforter to us in hard times. The Holy Spirit's got a lot of things that He brings to the table for our betterment so we can live pleasing lives. Well, notice, if we have abandoned self and we're just seeking to be led by the Spirit, and that's not some weird thing where you float three inches off the ground and something like that, don't think that. But it's simply saying that my agenda does not matter compared to God's agenda for my life. He has already lined out the good works that he desires for us to work in and to walk in. So whenever I bring in this, oh, well, I'm only going to do this if God does this. God is not coming to the table with you. He's not making those kind of things. He is calling you by his love. And by the insane, and I don't mean that in a bad way, the insane gifts that he lavishes upon every believer in Christ. He's never given us a reason not to trust him. It is constantly giving us reasons to trust him and showing him how self is never going to end well and how the spirit is always going to cause us to flourish. Well, notice, if you're led by God, if God is leading your life, you're a son of God. And if you want to mark the text for that, I think it's important that you put the connection between verse 14 and the end of verse 19. We're not going to hit that this week. We'll get it next week. But the idea of what it is to be sons of God, it is maturing. How do you mature? You mature by reliance upon the Spirit. 
That's what happens. The word and the spirit working together to change us. Now notice he says here, verse 15, for you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Man, I could preach for weeks on this. I'm not going to, don't worry. But when we talk about how much fear there is in this world, how much fear controls our lives, how much fear determines our decisions, how for some reason we think the preservation of our physical lives is the most important thing on the face of this earth when we have the word of God that tells us that there's so much more beyond that. When we operate in fear, that's not from God. I think it's very important for you to understand this because some of us are ruled by fear. It's not from God. You didn't receive a spirit of fear. Look what he tells us we received. But you have received a spirit of, what's that word? Adoption. Adoption. Let me ask you a question. You're brought into a family through adoption and that parent dies. Do the adopted kids get like only a portion of the inheritance? Are they cast to the side? Well, you're not really part of the family. Do they do that? No. An adopted child has full rights. Full rights. Takes on the name of the parent and is fully accepted into the family. You've, you've received a spirit of adoption. You've been adopted fully into God's family and have full rights. If you want to write it down, John 1.12 is a really good one to connect to that right there. A spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, let's say it this way. Everything that a believer in Christ needs to flourish into sonship or daughtership, into that rank has been freely supplied to you because of what Christ has done through the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is, are we utilizing everything that God has given us? Everyone in here has a potential to be a son, every single person. Now, why does this matter? It matters because in the Old Testament, whenever you had children, the firstborn son, and this is really the concept that it gets at, firstborn sons always received a double inheritance. So you had two kids, okay? Let's just think about the prodigal son situation. You've got the firstborn, and then you've got the secondborn. But you had three portions of inheritance. Why? Because the first one got two, the second one got one. I see this brings a lot of clarity to the Esau and Jacob situation. Everybody remember this? Because what Esau does is he models for us what it looks like to forfeit your rank as a firstborn son. And why did he do it? Soup! Man, Dinty Moore can't make the beef stew to make you give up that inheritance. Doesn't that seem silly? But where was the focus? In fact, let's do this. Mitch, go to the Genesis passage. Let's look at this real quick. This is interesting. You don't have to turn there, but just look on the screen with me, okay? Genesis 25. When Jacob had cooked stew, now I don't know if he's Martha Stewart or what, okay? Esau came in from the field and he was famished. I don't know about you, but the drama's thick, okay? He's famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there. For I am famished. It sounds like what? It sounds like he was a hillbilly. No. That red stuff there. We know that's not true because there's no sweet tea involved. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom means red. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. 
Now, I don't know if Jacob was an aspiring pawnbroker or what. Because anytime you go to the pawn shop, they're giving you a lot, you know, they're look, they're always coming out ahead on that. But Jacob, Jacob said, first tell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. <laughs> so of what use then is the birthright to me? Dramatic? Good grief, I'm about to die. So the next one, good Lord. And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went on his way. And here's what kills it. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let me ask you a question. Who was Esau concerned about in his life? Himself. Everybody see that? He was his own biggest fan. Living for self. This is a real-life historical event that took place in order to model for us what it looks like in the spiritual life to forfeit the opportunity to be a son of God. Children of God, absolutely, that can never be revoked. Son of God, that is something to be gained. That is a rank to grow into. That is a arresting of self and throwing self upon the leading of the Spirit. It's submitting. It is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So he says here, verse 16, now watch how this moves. He's given us another reason why we should trust the Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now here's why this is interesting. Number one, there's a concept that runs throughout Scripture known as the principle of two witnesses. So you'll have Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19. You talk about church discipline in Matthew 18, right? Then take two witnesses and go to this person so that every charge may be established. There needs to be something than just one person. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, I think it is, talks about that an accusation against an elder is not to be entertained except on the grounds of two witnesses. If it's just one witness, you're to dismiss it because there's no credible evidence there. So the idea of getting witnesses involved in order to establish the credibility or the validity of something, the value of something, was very important. Well, that's exactly what Paul does here. He takes up that principle. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, testifies. What's it mean to testify? Testify? What does that mean? Bear witness. I'm going to tell you what I've seen and heard. I'm going to put my hand on the Bible. I'm going to get on the stand, and I'm going to validate the truthfulness of a situation. The Holy Spirit bears witness. And if you have the word to in your translation next, it's wrong. It should actually be translated with. With our spirit. You know what that tells you? The Holy Spirit and your spirit are two separate things. It also tells you something else awesome. The Holy Spirit and your spirit are in complete agreement with one another. So not only does your spirit, remember we talked about the spirit, the central seat of our being that is connected to God. Not only that, but the indwelling Holy Spirit, he dwells in our spirit. They are both testifying to the same thing. And what are they testifying to? They're testifying to the fact that we are children of God. Notice that there's no condition here. There's no condition for sonship here. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a child of God. What seals your belonging to God, that spirit of adoption? The spirit of adoption is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who makes that process a finalized deal. And now forgive me for using the word process. It's an instantaneous thing. Now look where he goes after this. And if children, verse 17, heirs also, heirs of God. Now stop there. If you are a child of God and the Holy Spirit testifies that you are along with your spirit, you are an heir. You have something coming. 
It is automatically yours, no strings attached. You simply had to be in the right location for that to happen. And if you are in Christ, you are in the family of God. Now, take your finger, put it right here. Turn to 1 Peter 1. There is a general inheritance that every believer has, simply because God loves to lavish grace. In fact, you might want to put a little thing here in 1 Peter because we're going to come back to it. 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to look at verses 3 through 5 with me. Look what Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. I don't know about you, but that's enough to wet your whistle right there. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. See that word obtain? Take it out. It's not there. Italics means that they've added it as the translation in order to better understand. But look what it says if we take that out of there. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. You have an inheritance. I have an inheritance. What do I do to get the inheritance? Nothing. You're simply in the family and God just wants to give it to you. That's how much he loves you. Well, I don't deserve an inheritance. You didn't deserve to be saved. He did that too. He's full of grace. That's just how he rolls. Anybody still saying that? I don't know. Moving on. All you teenagers hate me now. Verse four. To an inheritance, imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, when you came to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelled you, you now became a child of God. And if you are a child, you are naturally an heir of all that God wants to give you. And you have been preserved until that final day. Now, I don't want to dwell too much into this because we could spend all day and get way off track. And you may think that I already am, but I'm not. So stick with me. But if you were to branch down to verse eight here, because it goes from the inheritance that every child of God receives to also an inheritance to be earned, which would be considered a double portion. Not only the inheritance of a child, but the inheritance of a son. And how does he explain that? Look at verse eight. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy. Is that your attitude today? You need to ask yourself the question. <laughs> you poor lovely soul. That was cute. As cute as could be. Is that your attitude today? Regardless of everything that life is smacking you with, can I sit here and say, you know what? It's all going down. But praise be to God who's triumphing over all these things. I have a love for him, though I have not seen him. I have joy inexpressible. I'll tell you what, it's possible when you're being led by the Spirit. If I was being led for the, by the world and expecting for these experts to come up with an example of how to fix America, yeah, I have every reason to go ahead and start playing the violin because the ship's going down. But... If I'm led by the Spirit, now I have a vista that you can't even express. Notice it says here, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The outcome of your faith is the maturity of your salvation. Here's what it is. The salvation of your, what is it, church? 
soul is your mind, will, and emotions. There it is. It's the salvation of your lives. It is the inheritance that's given to sons of God. Now, turn with me back to Romans so that we can hit this in 8, but then we're going right back to 1 Peter. Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God. Now watch this, and fellow heirs, co-heirs, if you want to write that in there, that helps you. Together, locking arms, heirs, co-heirs with who? Christ. Now watch this. Everybody see the next word? If. It is a condition. Now notice this. Being a child of God automatically qualifies you for a general heirship that everyone has as a child of God. It's, it's, it's everybody's. Now he wants to expand upon the idea of what it is to be sons of God, maturing sons, firstborn sons of God, maturing in your faith. And what it is is notice, you're also a co-heir with your Savior and your brother, Jesus, if, if what? Look what it says. If indeed we suffer with him. Why? So that we may also be glorified with him. Now here is what he's telling us. At some point in your life, you're going to suffer. It's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be a voice of the martyrs type of suffering. A lot of times it seems, especially with this context, and we'll see this later, is what it's talking about is just the general evils that occur in the world. And how does a believer navigate themselves? I'm sure that as you're walking throughout life, you think, good grief, Lord, is there not anything good in this world? He's going to tell you no. In fact, he came to a point in Genesis 6 where he said, I've looked at the hearts of people and it's only evil continually. Do you think that our time now is any different from that time then? It's really not. Now, I don't say that to be the doggy downer in the situation. But what I'm saying is, is the idea that we would ever look for hope in this world keeps us from resting upon the hope that's already been freely provided. And especially when you have to go through hard times. COVID situations are what we're dealing with right now. Regardless of what we want to think about it, I can tell you one thing it can be clearly classified as the result of the fall. That's what it is. It is a ramification of doing what we wanted to do instead of what God told us to do. And that's how that happens. That's the origins. If you stretch it all the way back where it comes from, there it is. Just like there's infidelity in marriage. Just like there's pornography problems. Just like there's drug addiction. And every situation that we deal with comes back to one superior motive. I want to do what I want to do. I don't care what God called me to do. The end of those things is death. But I guarantee you this. When we come to this point where we say, you know what? The Spirit of God is the only answer because God has done so much for me through the Spirit. Then you start to recognize how much friction you have in the world and you start to recognize that the things of earth become, what's it say? Strangely dim. Why? Strangely dim. Why? Because now you're looking at things through the light of His glory and His grace. That's the difference. That's exactly what the hymn writer was trying to make us see here. So there's a general heirship that every child of God has, but when you grow and mature in your faith because of your reliance, your dependency upon God, the leading of His Spirit, yes, His Word, 
taking it for truth because it claims to be true. It is true. It's never been proved wrong in 2,000 years of church history. Have a person yet to identify a flaw. And people have had plenty of time. I don't know what's taking them so long. But when we come to that point, we find that we start maturing. And now the question is, is how do we apply that? And the situation comes in the form of suffering in some way. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy 3. As I started to research this subject, I was blown away. And I, I, I shouldn't have been, but I was. Just scripture after scripture, passage after passage that deals with the concept of suffering and the believer's relationship to suffering. I'm going to go through this stuff pretty quickly to get it in on time. But I ask that you please pay attention. And I, and I ask, please, if you would please go back and say please a lot. Um, read over these things again so that they're not lost on you on Sunday, but they would stick with you. 2 Timothy 3, look at verse 10. And this is Paul writing to Timothy. This is Paul's last letter. He says, now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, steadfastness is the idea there. You got your marginal note. Persecutions and, what's the word, church? Sufferings. Timothy has seen it all play out in Paul. And how has Paul handled these things? Has he handled them in the flesh or has he handled them in the Lord? He says here, such as happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured. Now watch this, because if there's any hope for the believer, here it is when we face these things. Don't lose sight of this. Because when you come under an opportunity to suffer, a lot about your mindset is going to determine how you do in the midst of it. Look what it says. And out of them all, the Lord rescued me. You ever followed the life of Paul? They beat him with rocks and drug him out of the city because they thought he was dead. Wasn't it amazing that he just hopped right up and walked back in the city? And we go, that's so dumb! Or he's led by the Spirit. See, it doesn't make sense, does it? Logically, we say, cut and run. Logically, we say, shut your mouth and don't talk about Jesus anymore. Logically, we say, well, there's no way that I could ever obey in this situation because... And then we give some worldly reason that negates our opportunity to trust him. We're so sophisticated. We've got it all figured out. The Lord delivered me out of all of it. Was it fun being in the midst of it? No. You realize with the exception of the thorn that was in his flesh, Paul never prays, God, get me out of jail. He never prays that. Well, he's in jail. That can't be God's will for his life. You sure? Look what it says next. Verse 12. Good point to remember. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's your promise. Are there astounding, astronomical, unfathomable benefits of being led by the Spirit? Yes, there is. But understand this. They come with persecution. They come with suffering. You say, well, I don't know that I want to tread in that. I'm saying that you cannot understand the riches and the depths of the Spirit unless that is the path that we go through. Well, it might be very inconvenient. Man, we're real concerned about being inconvenienced today. That's not suffering. That's selfishness. We don't have a clue what suffering means in our world. We've had it too easy for too long. This is why picking up something like uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs is helpful for the soul. The people that had it much worse than us, we just stopped paying attention. 
It's probably what Satan wanted. Verse 13, watch this. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced with. This is why we uphold the Bible. Sound doctrine. Hold fast to the scriptures. You've learned them. You've been taught them. Don't neglect them. That is what helps you get through persecution knowing of whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, for Timothy that was the Old Testament, which are able to give you wisdom. When you're suffering, do you need wisdom? You sure? Okay, because like six of you said so. The answer is yes, which are able to give you wisdom, so you need the scriptures. And notice this, that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Does everybody see that's a future salvation to be had for Timothy? How are you going to get there, Timothy? You're going to hold fast to the word of God and not neglect it in the midst of this persecuted time. And as you are leading your godly life, you can be guaranteed of one thing. It is given way to a greater inheritance to be had. Why? Because when you suffered with Christ, you will also be glorified with Christ. Does everybody see this? Okay. Now we have a good 20 minutes here. Lucky you. Turn to 1 Peter. Turn back to 1 Peter. There are many places we could choose from. Go to chapter 2. Think about Acts chapter 5 when Peter and John were glorifying God because they were considered worthy to suffer for him after they were beaten for speaking in his name. You think about the conversion of Paul. He will be the apostle to the Gentiles and the Lord tells of his calling. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Chapter 2. I want you to see something real quick if you want to mark this later for your benefit. I want you to notice verse 13, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 1. Notice that 13 starts with submit yourselves. Everybody see that? Because it talks about citizenship. Regardless of where you're living in the world, as a Christian... You have a certain expectation of how to conduct yourself as a citizen. Notice in verse 18, be submissive, how? As a servant. Or we could liken this to as an employee, as someone who has somebody in charge over them. You look in chapter 3, verse 1, be submissive, how? As a spouse. It's not just for wives only. I want to point that out. Chapter 3, verse 1, notice it says in the same way, you wives... But don't just get sold out on that. Look at verse 7. You husbands, in the same way. In the same way what? In the same way be submissive. Do everybody realize that husbands, you're to be submissive. I've never heard that before, pastor, because it didn't work to your advantage. Now, we're not covering three, but I think that's important to, to point that out for you. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. What are some situations we could find that would cause friction with the flesh in order to entice us to not be faithful in suffering. It says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, who's ruling your province or your nation. Guess what? You should be in submission to them. Or to a governor who is sent by him, sent by the king, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Now, why is that? For such is the will of God. Stop. This cures a lot for you guys. I just wish I knew what God's will was for my life. 
I love that the word of God eliminates the fog. The will of God for our life, look what it says here, is that by doing right, we would silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now think about what it's saying here, because this is the testy subject in our day and age. If whatever is decreed from on high in our nation, as long as it doesn't infringe upon our opportunity to evangelize the lost and make disciples of the saved, we are to be submissive, which means we are to voluntarily place ourselves under the authority. Well, I don't like that. God didn't ask if you did. He's telling us how to do right because he knows that if a Christian will just serve out as a model citizen with Christ as our banner, not that we're upholding the king, not that we're upholding the president, not that we're upholding the speaker, not that we're upholding anybody else, we're upholding Christ. We know that the right doing that flows out of us because it is the will of God, and if we're in the will of God, then the Spirit of God is obviously working through us. It will actually cause sinful people to shut their mouths. It testifies. Would everybody agree that the moral standard of our nation has eroded severely? Guess where the salt and light is? Sitting right here. How is that? Well, we got to be living godly lives because I don't know about you, but one of the first inclinations I have is to complain against the government. I know that's not you. But what does that do as far as the testimony of the Holy Spirit in you? The Holy Spirit's a complainer, yes? No. Holy Spirit has all the confidence in the world. The Holy Spirit has no reason to be shaken by any circumstance. Guess what? The Holy Spirit wants that same thing for you. He indwells you. And if we will simply be led by the Spirit, we will mature in that way because we're following His lead. Notice he says here, verse 16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Well, I'm free in Christ, so I can just do whatever. No, you're demonstrating your maturity in Christ. You're demonstrating your infancy in Christ. Look what it says here. But use it as, good word, bond slaves of God. Bond slaves. Anybody know what a bond slave is? After serving off a debt for six years in the nation of Israel, when it came to the end of the seventh year, we've been studying this in Deuteronomy class, which, by the way, during Sunday school meets right back there in that little room. If you're making your way out and going home, there's nothing good for you there. Deuteronomy class is happening back there. Just saying. Can't say amen, you gotta say ouch. Bond slaves. Someone who in the seventh year of their service to pay off their debt could go free. But because of the love that they have for their master, says, I want to stay with you. I want to be joined to you voluntarily. And it's a joyful experience. Don't read 17th and 18th century American slavery into this situation. It has nothing to do with it. It is because they say, where else would I go? Notice, live as a free person, as someone who is joyfully and voluntarily bound to Christ. Keep your ultimate allegiance at the top. That's what's going to get you through. Well, it just doesn't make sense to me. You don't have to figure it out. Jesus didn't change. His word didn't change. The Holy Spirit didn't get weird. You're good. It's all these little things that get us off task. 
that keep us from victory in the midst. Notice it says here, verse 17, honor all people. Honor all people. Who's all? You sure? All y'all? Even the person that's had multiple affairs is known for swindling and deceit. How about the person that's just come out as transgender? How about the drug addict that just can't seem to get their life together? See, we start to think about who deserves to be honored and who doesn't. It says all, doesn't it? All. Let me ask you a question. If you're in Christ, and you should be securing your salvation, which we'll get to at the end of eight, what do we have to prove in this world? Nothing. We see things, and it, by all means, the church is to be discerning about what is sin and what is not. And we can look at something and say, that's wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But as far as a person created in the image of likeness of God, is there any way, reason why we should defame them like that? No. In fact, that's probably where the church has gotten their feet in hot water more times than not. And the love of Christ has been eclipsed in the church. See how easy it is to do the flesh rather than the spirit? Honor all. 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 Love the brotherhood. Agape. Selflessly loving. Let me ask you a question. You love everybody here today? Look around. Like, oh... I did until you told me to look around, right? Do you love your brothers and sisters? We've talked about this. That is a spirit-led endeavor. It has to be. I've told you this before. Let me stress it again. I'm sure I'll say it a lot because it bothers me. I know I'm from the outside. <laughs> Put your mask on. Make sure it's a steel one. <clears throat> but as the church, Grace Bible Church, we are too disconnected in our fellowship with one another. It does not serve to our advantage. It does not spur us on. We need each other. There are a lot of churches in the, in the light of safety, and I'm not disrespecting this at all, have chosen not to meet physically during this time. I'm so thankful that the elders have constantly come back to the table and said, we need this. We need to meet. We need one another. And let me stress to you, we need one another all the more. All the more. Because we have this common kinship in Christ. You don't find it other places. We need one another. This is why we have to be discipling one another. Notice it says here, love the brotherhood. Fear God. Respecting him first, honoring him first, bowing before him first, and then it brings you back to honoring the king as we saw in verse 13. Now he moves to servants, another way that we could find ourselves not willing to suffer out. And this is when the word actually starts to bubble to the surface. Think of your employee and employer situation. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Notice he starts with attitude with all respect, with all reverence. Now that kind of goes back to the honor all people, doesn't it? It includes your boss. It includes the person that is over you. 
He says, not only to those who are good and gentle, because that's easy, right? I love such and such, man. They're so good to work for. Woo! Can't wait to go to work. How's it going? Give one of those things, right? Because we're down. We're homies. We're bros. You know? But look what he says here. Some of you thought I just spoke in tongues. I didn't. But also those who are unreasonable. Whether you gel with them or you don't. Even those who are unreasonable. Everybody see the word unreasonable? Interesting Greek word here. Scolios. Where we get the English word scoliosis from. And the idea here is bent or crooked. Even if they're crooked. It doesn't change the fact that we are to operate with respect. In fact, here's what's interesting. Our humble walk with the Lord does not change regardless of the circumstances and factors around us. There's a lot that goes on in the whirlpool of life. Being dead in the center, we are unchanged. We too often let these external things creep in and dictate how we move. It's often illustrated in feelings. Well, I don't feel like respecting that person. And if we're a good brother and sister in Christ, we come and we put our arm around that person. We say, when did you get out of fellowship with the Spirit? Because that's what it boils down to. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not standing in superiority over you. Understand this. I got feelings just like anybody else. Ask my wife. I'm sure she thinks she lives with a basket case. And can they often dictate decisions? Yes. This is also why we're called to let the Word of God dwell in us richly, because it does not change. And if you need anything, whenever panic and stress and suffering comes upon you, you need something that's unchanging and stable. And that's what this is. Even if they're crooked. Now watch this, verse 19. For this finds favor. Everybody see that word? The word is grace. Write it in. In fact, your marginal note has it. I say we should prefer it. For this finds grace. In the midst of a trying time, do you need grace? Awesome, let's get into it. For this finds grace if, now watch this proper motive, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What is your motivation? Look what it says here. For the sake of your conscience towards God, as long as I can keep my conscience between me and my Father, clear. That's how I need to approach this suffering situation. It's when you start looking for easy ways out, which are usually a result of a sin solution that causes our consciences to be struck. And then when we have a moment of sobriety, we recognize, oh my gosh, I'm not in fellowship with the Father anymore. I've got to get down and confess this stuff. I've got to take a time out and go to my closet in secret and I've got to get along with the Lord and say, Father, what in the world was I thinking? I guarantee you his answer is you weren't. Because we weren't thinking according to his word. But if the motivation stepping into a situation that can get hostile because crooked people have a say-so over our lives, if the idea is, I just need to keep a clear conscience with the Lord. It's only by walking in the Spirit that that happens. So notice, for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows, notice that, 
That could even intensify itself to the point of depression in our lives. Depression? Anybody ever read David's Psalms? Lord, they're after my very life. He doesn't sound like a happy dude at that moment. He's depressed. Or Ecclesiastes, good grief. Or Lamentations. You get to the end, Jeremiah, why are you so sad? Because nobody listens to me. Welcome to the pastorate. Just kidding. (laughs) Making sure you're still paying attention. There's a lot to be said about the intensity of worldly sorrows all throughout the Bible. How do people deal with it? They talk to God. Here's something controversial. They didn't talk to their doctor. They didn't talk to their shrink. They didn't talk to a psychologist. They went to God. They took God for who he is at his word and said, Lord, help. And here's what you find every time. The solution is dwelling upon who God is, not who we are. That is always the prescription out of depression. Every time. So maybe sorrow gets deep in these situations. Notice it says when suffering unjustly. Well, don't you know I don't deserve this? Scripture says, yeah. Well, don't you know I didn't do anything to bring this on? Yeah. Well, I'm not wrong here. Yeah. Are you keeping your conscience clear with God over this? Or has it become about you and your rights and your say-so? Everybody see how this is really a surrender situation and suffering. Either God's going to come out in flying colors or it's not going to work. Look what it says here. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with much patience? Didn't you do wrong? Yeah, if you sinned and you get treated harshly, guess what? You deserved it. But notice, Peter wants to show us the difference. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor, grace with God. How do I get the grace of God as an active agent that greases the wheels of my suffering situation? Everybody see this? Patiently endure. Now, immediately, patience is one of the greatest dirty words that you learn in your adult life. Don't pray for it. God will not give it to you. He's already given it to you in the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit, singular, is patience is manifested. So when you're walking in the Spirit or you're led in the Spirit, guess what? Patience is. It's not something to be given or something to be obtained if I'm just holy enough and starve myself enough and all these other things. That doesn't work that way. God has already freely given it. But everybody see the word endure. It's a very interesting Greek word. Hupo, minnow. Hupo means to go under. Minnow means to abide. We talk about John 15, abide in him. Everybody remember that? He who abides in me will bear much fruit. This means to abide under patiently this situation. It is you voluntarily saying, I'm not going to rescue myself. I am going to deal with the sorrow, deal with the unjust treatment, and I'm going to commit myself to God who will answer this situation. 
You say, well, that's not easy. No, it's not. Because you're trusting the word of God. But is he not leading you to be sons? Isn't his goal to conform us to the image of his son? Verse 21. We'll wrap up here. For you've been called for this purpose. We've been called for what purpose? To suffer suffer for the sake of righteousness. That's what Christians have been called to in this life. Whether it be to an extreme where you end up giving your life for the faith, or whether it be to a minuscule value of simply the fact that you're having a lot of issues with what you see in the headlines. He says here, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Everybody see that word example? The idea is when you teach a child to trace letters, you got those little dotted letters, A, B, C, right? Nathaniel's learning how to do those things. He's learned how to trace those letters, so he learns how to form his letters. That's what Christ is. Christ is a means where you take your life and you put on top of his and you trace the letters that he's already dotted out for you. He says here, he's left you an example for you to follow in his steps. In other words, we talk about, oh, I just want to follow Christ. I just want to follow Christ. Following Christ has to do with following him through all the junk he went through as well. And here's what I love about this. Here's what's great. You're not at a disadvantage. Why? Because the same power that Christ needed to get through his hard times is the same power that's available to you and me, and that is the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 is very plain. The works that he does are through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not any different for us. Same power, same power. So he says here, what did Jesus do? Who committed no sin. Is that us in the midst of a suffering situation? No? Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Uh Uh-oh. That's such and such. I love such and such. That's safe to say. Verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. What was the secret? Well, he kept entrusting himself, even when it didn't seem logical, even when it didn't seem rational, even when it didn't seem possible. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Suffering. If you're a child of God, you automatically have an inheritance. That's just because God's a giver. He's gracious. He loves giving. He loves lavishing upon you. But God also knows that more can be had. And he has set every one of our lives up to where we can have more of him and less of this world and less of sin and less of the temptation that Satan wants to bring along. And he has promised that if we will suffer just as Christ suffered, patiently enduring, remaining faithful, being steadfast, even when it doesn't make sense, even when your body is saying enough, We keep entrusting ourselves to him who judges righteously. We have promised that we will be co-heirs with him because we will be glorified with him. Firstborn sons, double inheritance available to us. Let's pray. Father, every one of our lives are different. And yet your word is so profound that it speaks to every one of our situations. 
our frustrations often control our attitudes and our mindsets. And if I'm thinking about anything that I need to understand better this morning, it is where I cling so fast to myself and what I want and how I want things done rather than submitting myself to you so that you can do great things through me. Father, we may not readily understand at all that you use suffering situations, hardships, trials in life to conform us to the image of Christ. But I can see that you are constantly teaching us that we just don't have the answers. We will never suffice. Father, thank you that Jesus is everything that we need. Thank you, God, that when he ascended into heaven, he called upon you to send the Spirit, and you have done so as our comforter, as our counselor, as our help in a time of need, as our guide into all truth. What a blessed people we are. Father, give us eyes to see. Pray it in Jesus' name.